family. It's really good to see you here this morning. And for those of you visiting, like John said, we are really glad to have you with us this morning. Uh, So thank you for being here. Over the past three weeks, we've been asking and answering this simple question, who are we? And the answer to that question is we are a family of missionary servants learning to live everyday life with gospel power and purpose. We are ordinary people learning to live with gospel intentionality sent as disciples who make disciples. That's who Jesus has created us to be and calls us to be, and he empowers us to be this through his spirit. So let's pray as we begin, as we um, get ready to dive back into Revelation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for bringing us here this morning. We thank you for creating us, recreating us in the image of Jesus. We thank you for adopting us into a forever family. Uh, None of us are alone. We, We, you are always with us. Uh, We're never alone. You have adopted us into a family, and so we thank you for these gifts. You've given us life through the Spirit, and we thank you for that. And every day, you renew our lives through the same Spirit. So Jesus, we thank you for coming to our rescue. We thank you for living the perfect life in our place and for dying the death that we deserved in our place for giving us life. Holy Spirit, we thank you for bringing our hearts to life. We thank you for sustaining that. And we would ask again this morning that you would do for us what we, we need for you to do, that you would humble our hearts, uh, open our, the ears and the eyes of our hearts so that we can see and hear truth and then respond to it appropriately in humility and in gratitude. Uh, please do this for us and give us this gift of faith again this morning. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're now halfway through our seven letters series, and our goal in this series is to learn more about who God made us to be as his church, and how he calls us to live as his family, and then to press into what we learn. Last week, we saw Jesus commence his family when facing extreme pressure to conform to the culture. They fearlessly and faithfully live out their gospel identity and purpose. And today, we're going to see something somewhat similar, but with a twist to it. We're going to see that Jesus commends his family for their faithful public witness, but when he sees in them a dangerous hypocrisy, he corrects their unfaithful personal ways. We're going to see that in Revelation chapter 2, from verse 12 to 17. It's the portion of the letter addressed to the church in Pergamum. I'm going to read that out loud for us, and if you would follow along on the screen or in your Bibles, that'd be fantastic. Revelation 2, verse 12. Jesus said this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, if you don't repent, I will come to you soon and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. 
And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So Jesus commends his family for their faithful public witness, but he goes on when he sees in them a dangerous hypocrisy, he corrects their unfaithful personal ways. We're going to hang our thoughts on three points this morning. First, again, Jesus not only commends, but he also corrects his family. And secondly, Jesus commends the church in Pergamum for their faithful public witness. But when he sees in them that dangerous hypocrisy, he very specifically corrects their unfaithful personal ways, and he calls them to repent. So let's begin with the commendation and the correction from Jesus. We, we like commendations, right? Do you like commendations? I love commendations. I love being told that I am doing a good job. Um, I like to be told that I'm doing something well. You guys like to stack the ribbons up. You want all the commendations. We like commendations. They're life-giving when they're true. They are life-giving. One of my favorite memories of my papa, my dad's dad, uh, is the way that he would look at me and say in his warm and weary grandfatherly voice, Jonathan, you do good work, son. That was just his signature statement to me and to any of his grandchildren. You, you do good work. It's very kind of him to say and very life-giving. And so not only was it life-giving in the moment, the memory of those words, the memory of his smell and just every detail around it, those are life-giving memories for me. We don't like corrections in the same way, though, do we? We don't remember those corrective moments as fondly. Most of us don't like being told that we're not doing something well and that we need to grow and change, but corrections can be just as life-giving as commendations. In fact, they can be even more life-giving. In Proverbs, we read this, faithful are the wounds of a friend. That's what that verse is saying. Corrections wound your spirit temporarily. They're hard to receive. They hurt when they're received. But it's a surgical wounding. It's a good hurt meant to give or restore, restore life. Those wounds, those corrective wounds are faithful to us. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And Jesus is going to deliver that kind of wound in this letter. So it's going to hurt a little bit. And hopefully it hurts us a little bit this morning as well because it's a good it's a good hurt. In fact, healthy churches learn to receive commendations and corrections from Jesus. We need both. Healthy churches learn to remember corrections as warmly as they do commendations. Hey, you remember the time? And it's, received, it's, it's remembered warmly now. Healthy churches learn to practice both. We commend regularly. We should commend all the time. We should commend way more than we correct, way more. If there's a scale up here, the commendations should just crush the corrective side of the scale. So we commend all the time. That's a gospel fruit. But we also correct when necessary. That too is a gospel fruit and it's a gift. So Jesus is introduced here in this letter as him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So what, is, what does that mean? Well, in a Roman provincial capital like per Pergamum, government authorities had what's known as the right of the sword. In other words, they had legal authority to carry out capital punishment. That's what it means. They could legally execute people. So to this church in a Roman city, when Jesus is introduced as the one who holds the sharp two-edged sword, they are being reminded that while they certainly face daily threats to their lives for living as followers of Jesus, Jesus alone has ultimate power and authority over life and death. In other words, if Jesus wants you alive... 
you will remain alive no matter the threat to your life. That's what that means. And so obviously this is meant to be an encouragement to them. Living in a dangerous city, they're reminded, no, Jesus is the one who ultimately has the power of life and death, the authority over life. He wants you alive, you're gonna remain alive no matter the threat to you. But this title serves a dual purpose. It's also meant as a warning to us. In the Roman world, the sword served as a symbol of Roman justice. So introduced in this way, Jesus' family is being reminded that Jesus is the true and better judge. So for them, at the end of the day, it does not matter what they said about themselves and their own Christianity. At the end of the day, it didn't matter to them what other people said about them. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what their gravestone said about them. We could, let's say that about ourselves. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what somebody else says about you. At the end of the day, it really even does not matter what you say about yourself and your own relationship with God, nor does it matter what's inscribed on your gravestone at the end of your life. What matters is what Jesus, who alone is the true and better judge, what he says about you and what he says about your relationship with him. He is the one true judge. In verse 16, we see that Jesus' sharp two-edged sword is referred to as the sword of my mouth. In other words, Jesus judges by his word, which... We have. Jesus judges by his word. We see that idea expressed in Hebrews chapter 4. I, I think these verses will be familiar to you. They should be on the screen. Hebrews 4 verse 12. It says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Jesus is reminding his church that no one, nothing is hidden from his sight. That's what we see in verse 13. Jesus says, I know where you live. I see you. Nothing is hidden from my sight. I see what you do in secret. I see what you erase from your browsing history. I even see your thoughts and I see your invisible motives. I see what you feel. You are naked and exposed before me and you will give an account to me. Everyone will. And so this reality will come into play in a few moments when we explore why Jesus corrects his family. But let's go with the order of the text and let's begin with his commendation to them. So our our second point here, Jesus commends the church in Pergamum for their faithful public witness. Now, this is quite the commendation considering where they live. Jesus says two things about Pergamum. This city is where Satan's throne is. It is where, in fact, he says, Satan lives. So in this culture, a throne was symbolic of power and authority. So what Jesus is saying is this. These Christians worked and played on a field where Satan had home field advantage. Their team never had home field advantage. They lived and worked where Satan's throne is. Yet, they maintain a public faithful witness to Jesus. That's incredible given their circumstances. Many of us have a hard time maintaining a faithful public witness to Jesus, myself included, in environments that are not at all hostile to us, at all. In fact, they're kind of friendly to us most of the time. Yet these people, these followers of Jesus, maintained a faithful public witness in a city characterized by Satan's throne. That's a dark place. 
You know, what's more incredible to our modern Western sense of things, though, is not just that these Christians happen to live in this city, right? Not that they just happen to live in a place where, where Satan's throne was, where he lived, where he has this authority. What's more incredible is this, that Jesus himself placed them there. He sent them there to live as his family of servant missionaries. That kind of messes with our Western pseudo-justice, modern fairness sense of things, right? But Jesus intentionally placed his family to live in this city where Satan's throne was. Jesus placed them there. But guys, the gospel changes everything. Because who would ever walk into a realtor's office and announce, hey man, I'm, I'm looking for a home and I'd really like to have a home mm, somewhere near where Satan's throne is. Like if you can get me as close to Satan's house, that's the house I'm looking for, right? Now when we begin our home searches, we generally begin with the rating of the public school system around us because that's gonna dictate a lot of property value, right? So we start with school system, we work to property value and other factors. Imagine starting this way looking for the darkest, most broken place in the city to live. Find me a place next door to Satan. No way. But when the gospel rocks your world and realigns your affections and allegiances on Jesus and reorders your life around Jesus' purpose for you, suddenly we are awakened to the reality that we exist to live as Jesus' family of servant missionaries. And so now, if that's our starting point, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense to live in Satan's neighborhood, light into darkness. Besides, Jesus is the one, he says, with a sharp two-edged sword. He has ultimate power and authority over my life. Satan does not. Satan has no authority over my life. He has no power over my life. Both of those things belong exclusively to Jesus. So let come what may. We live as his family of servant missionaries in dark places, not fearful of the darkness, but confident in Jesus' kind kingly rule. We live in dark places, not with anxiety, but with a heart that's at rest because Jesus alone is the true and better judge. Jesus alone is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And Pergamum was that dark place. So why did Jesus say that Pergamum is where Satan's throne was? I mean, there are a lot of evil cities in the world. Why would he say, and he, he talks to seven different churches in this letter, but this one in particular, he says, this is where Satan's throne is. Why did he say that? Well, likely for one of two reasons or a combination of them both. Remember last week when we talked about imperial worship or what is commonly known as the imperial cult where the practice of worshiping a king or an emperor as God is just the standard practice for the culture? Um, in fact, it's considered not only a civic duty, but it's a one-for-one. One. This is an act of patriotism. If you, are, if you love your country and you are patriotic to it, you join in this view of your king or your emperor and you worship him as God. And so this was, this was exceptionally common then. Well, the, the capital of imperial worship was Pergamum. Like this is ground zero, zero for that practice. And so that's likely the first reason why Jesus referred to Pergamum as the place where Satan lived. In fact, in 29 BC, Augustus granted permission for an imperial temple to be built in Pergamum, one of the first, and the dedication to that temple, the dedication to that worship space um, in place of our artful sign out front, it said this, it said, to the divine Augustus and the goddess Roma, right? So this is, this is their statement of belief. And it was expected that all residents of the city would refer to the emperor, ready for his three titles? Lord, Savior, and God. 
right? So clearly that presented a slight conflict of interest for followers of Jesus, just a little bit. The second likely reason Jesus referred to Pergamum as the place where Satan keeps his throne is for the sheer number of temples and worship sites built in that city to honor all the gods of that day. I mean, here are just a few. We have Athena, who was the city's patron deity and the goddess of victory. So they loved Athena. She wasn't the only one. Zeus, so Pergamum, while it was a a Roman city at the time, as you know, it had just deep Greek roots. And so Zeus was a big deal there. And Zeus was given a throne-like altar high above the city. It stood at an elevation of 1,300 feet. The city was kind of down in the valley. Uh, Zeus sits, a, sits on this throne up on the, on the hillside, and there's an altar in front of him, and he, he looks down over the city. Shortly after that throne was constructed, it served as a place of sacrifice where rotating teams of priests sacrificed human people, human victims, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week by burning them alive at this site overlooking Pergamum. I'm mean, just pure evil. This is Pergamum. Pergamum was also home to the cult of Asclepius. Any fans in the room? So she, she, he, that god is the god of healing and of medicine. So that's the character that's got the serpent. In fact, I Googled it, no joke, after I did some reading. I just Googled to see what would pop up. There are still firms uh, that go by that name, investments for investment firms and medical practice firms. So if you're an investor, maybe just be careful where you place your money there. Um, but this was, Pergamum was home to the God of healing whose symbol was a serpent. And the list goes on and on and on. Did you know, did you know this, that Christians in this day were actually considered atheists? They were like, Christians were the, the first atheist, if you will, uh, considered atheists by the culture because they would not worship the emperor as God. Additionally, Christians were labeled as, you ready for this label? Haters of the human race. Remember we said a couple weeks ago, like everything changes in 2,000 years, but yet at the heart, nothing has really changed. Christians were known as haters of the human race. And here's why. Because of their unwillingness to worship the emperor and the other cultural gods. And that unwillingness was interpreted to mean that they clearly did not care about the best interest of Rome or her people. All right, if you cared, you would... You would if you were in joining and worshiping with the gods, you bring well wishes and blessing and all of this to the people. And so they were viewed as haters of the human race. Nothing has changed in 2,000 years. If you refuse to bend your knee to the gods of our prevailing culture, whatever they happen to be at the time, one in our own day is if you, if you confess singular allegiance to Jesus as your king, you will likely earn the same title at some point in your life. We see that when it comes to human sexuality. If you refuse to worship at the altar of sexual identity and sexual expression, submitting instead to Jesus' good creative design for your sexuality, no matter how gentle, no matter how loving, no matter how kind you are in the way that you talk about these things, you will likely be labeled as a hater of the human race at some point for holding that view. Nothing ever really changes, guys. It's just repackaged over time. Ecclesiastes tells us that. There's just nothing new under the sun. Everything in this world changes, yet at the heart, everything stays the same. So in all of this, like in this culture where Christians would leave their homes and leave their worship gathering places and be immediately viewed as haters of the human race, this, you might as well wear a t-shirt or a name tag going to work and walking around your city that's got that name on it. This is their context. 
but they remained publicly loyal to Jesus. And so Jesus pointed out one family member by name in the text. His name was Antipas. And Jesus calls him my faithful witness. And we learn that this young man was put to death for his faith in the text. And tradition tells us that Antipas was slowly roasted to death in a brazen bull. The bull was a symbol of the god... um, I don't have my Greek down at all this morning. Dionysus? How's that sound? Dionysus? You got it? All right, some of you took that class in college. All right. That guy, um, he was just another god worshipped in, in Pergamum, and he was represented by a bull. That was, that was his representation. And so it seems what happened um, through the accounts that we have down through history, Antipas was brought before a statue of Caesar, and he was told to swear that Caesar was God, just to rattle off those titles that we mentioned before. Yeah, he's God, he's my Lord, and he, if I worship him, will be my Savior. Instead, Antipas boldly proclaimed that Jesus alone was Lord, Jesus alone was God, and Jesus alone saves. And so then Antipas was looked in the eyes, and he was told, the entire world is against you, son. To which he replied, well, then I guess I am against the world. And he was placed inside of a brass bowl, which was then placed over fire. And he was heated with that fire until he, until he roasted to death. This is the guy in the letter. This is who we're talking about, guys. And so the church, Antipas's family, they're commended for holding fast Jesus' name and not denying Jesus' faith in the face of that kind of hostility. That's an incredible commendation. They're there watching this happen. This is the city that they're living in, yet as a church, they remained publicly loyal to Jesus. They didn't deny the faith of the cross. That's incredible. And taken together, these two points of commendation mean that the church in Pergamum held a strong and public reputation for their loyalty to Jesus, their allegiance to him as God and king, and their affections for him as a savior. And this is commendable, not just because of their hostile circumstances. It's commendable, guys, because we all know from personal experience that holding fast to Jesus doesn't just happen on its own. It's not like it just happens, like, oops, there I go again. I held fast to Jesus. Isn't it amazing how that just happens by accident in my life? Like, I wake up and there I am, like, good Christian. Um, I don't, this is just not real. That is not a common life experience. It doesn't happen on its own. So not only are they in this hostile environment where it would make perfect sense for them to try to blend in a little bit just to live. I mean, goodness, just so you're not roasted in an iron statue, like, makes sense. But not only did they not deny Jesus, the text says they held fast to him, and and this doesn't just happen on on its own. It takes work. It takes real effort and intentionality. So they're not just blending in. They're actually moving in the opposite direction to lean into Jesus. At the root of the word hold fast is the idea of using one's strength to grasp at something forcibly and then not letting it go. So it's daily work. Family, we can't miss this because this is the work that Jesus is commending for them. Not just the fact that they were holding fast, he's commending them for the work that it took to hold fast. That's what he's commending them for. Jesus commends his family for this work, which in turn produces a faithful public witness. The faithful public witness, the stuff on the top, is produced by the invisible work that people can't see to hold fast to Jesus, and that's what he's commending them for. Guys, we need to notice this too. 
the commendation goes to the family. He's not commending individual Christians in Pergamum. He's commending the family as a whole. That should really catch our attention, especially in our Western individualistic mindset and culture. What's being said is this, implicit in the text, holding fast to Jesus is a family effort. Enduring in the faith rather than denying Jesus is a family effort. Living consistently as a faithful public witness to Jesus is, you got it, a family effort. We do not hold fast to Jesus alone in isolation. We don't do it. We hold fast together. We don't endure in the faith alone. We endure in community with a robust participation in the life of a local expression of God's family, which we've been learning in our our time in Revelation, is the church locally expressed. God's family. We do this together. This is our Father's good design for us. Uh, It's good for us, and it's good for his fame, and it's good for people who are not yet part of his family. Uh, Now, thinking over this idea this week reminded me of the Old Testament account where Moses was growing weary in prayer. You remember when God had instructed Moses to hold fast to him by raising his arms to the heavens in prayer on behalf of his people. You remember that account? And so this is happening for hours on end. Some of you did that in boot camp for less than 10 minutes at a time, and it's not really possible, is it, right? You do your sun gods, they're called, or the best is when they have you hold a piece of paper out in front of you for a little while, and what weighs just an ounce or two after a minute or three becomes 10 pounds. You just, you can't hold it up anymore. Well, some of you did that. Sorry, one of the service branches did that. I know, I know from personal experience, it's fun. Um, So Moses is here for hours on end, lifting his hands to prayer is what he's been told to do for his people's good. And we read in Exodus 17, 12, it says this, but Moses' hands grew weary. So that's you and me trying to hold on to Jesus alone. We grow weary. We don't do it alone. So they, there's somebody else there, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur, what did they do? They held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Guys, that's what the church in Pergamum was doing. That's how they persevered. That's how they maintained their faithful public witness. Guys, church is not something that we attend. It's who we are. We're talking about identity as a family. It's life together. We hold tight. We endure together. And so we should ask ourselves a few important questions. What am I doing to contribute to the faithful public witness of this family? What what measurable thing am I doing relationally to contribute to the faithful public witness of this family? We could ask this question. Who in this family around me is tired Whose arms am I helping to hold up until the going down of the sun? Who's holding my arms up? Guys, the church in Pergamum was commended by Jesus for this quality. So let's ask ourselves this question. If Jesus were to write us a letter, dear Pillar Church of Okinawa, would we be commended for this very same thing? Let's personalize it a little bit more. If Jesus wrote that letter to us and he was basing the commendation of the correction just on John Ransom's actions alone or fill in your own name, would Jesus commend us as the kind of family who are like Aaron and her, one on one side, one on the other, 
encouraging each other and persevering together, holding each other's arms up uh, for each other's good and for our faithful public witness. Would Jesus commend us for this quality? But while Jesus does commend the church in Pergamum for this, it must have been a beautiful church family to belong to. Imagine being part of a church where that was just the, the desire, the motive in the heart. Like you, you spend time together as family and, and this was what they wanted to do for you. This one must have been an incredibly life-giving family. Deep down, we all want to belong to that kind of family. We, we all desire it. We have hearts that look at churches and we're like, man, imperfect and messy and weak because we, we have a sense of what the church should be. Sometimes in our culture, though, the, too often the solution is presented to us, well, if it's not right or if there's something wrong or deficient, you should go somewhere else and find a better church. And that advice steers us wrong 99% of the time. The biblical solution would be, be Aaron, be her, and hold up an arm. Stay where you are, see what the church is supposed to be, and then be it, like live that out as a family. All right, so Pergamum gets that commendation. But now for the correction, Jesus sees in them a dangerous hypocrisy, and so he corrects their unfaithful personal ways. He says this, I have a few things against you. Your faithful public witness is strong. I'm commending you for it. Everyone knows you are a Christian. You say the right things. You show up at church. You own a Bible. You got the Celtic cross tattoo or the fish. You've got it. Your social media even looks pretty saved. Like I just checked it out and you generally look Christian. But I see in you a dangerous, almost subtle hypocrisy. While you maintain a a faithful public witness, you are unfaithful to me in some of your personal ways. You say that I'm your king out loud and in public. Your t-shirt says it. Your bumper sticker says it. Everybody at your unit knows you're the Christian but you don't submit to me in all of life as your king. That's, what's go- that's what was going on in the church in Pergamum. It's hard to tell at first because this is kind of a funky paragraph with some names that we're just not used to seeing, right? Jesus says to them, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So like, all right, I don't know, man, Balaam, Balak, what in the world is going on? So Balak was an enemy of God's people. Um, Many, many, many generations before this letter was written, hundreds of years before this letter was written, but Balak was an enemy of God's people. He hated God's family and he was desperate to see them destroyed. That's all he cared about. He just wanted to see God's people destroyed. So Balak, the cunning, crafty leader that he is, hires Balaam, who was a well-known Gentile prophet basically a mercenary of sorts, right? He was a prophet for hire and uh, he would come and consult with you and if your price was right, he he would do your bidding as a prophet. So he's a mercenary prophet. So Balak hires Balaam for his advice and his assistance in destroying God's family. That's what they're, that's what they're doing. And Balak's investment pays off. Balaam gave good advice, which did in fact lead to the destruction of many of God's family. You can read about it. Here's just a couple examples. Numbers 31, verse 16. says, Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord. So Balak's investment paid off. Balaam gave good advice, and the advice led to thousands, tens of thousands of God's family acting treacherously against the Lord. Well, how did they act treacherously against God? Numbers 25, verse 1. 
the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. And these, the daughters of Moab, these young women, invited the people to, to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Now, in the Bible, the word whore, uh, used in a verbal sense, like whoring, sometimes you see it that way, can refer actually to sexual immorality or sexuality and sexual expression outside of God's good creative design, like in a, in a general sense. That is, um, any sexual expression or activity um, outside of God's design, God's design being sex for the good of another within the covenant relationship of marriage. So it can be used as a very general term. But the word whoring can also serve as a metaphor of our unfaithfulness to God. And in this case, Balaam's influence led to both the physical sexual sin, but also just generally God's covenant family just showing themselves to be whoring in their spirits in the sense that they were just perpetually unfaithful to the God who saved them. Basically, Israel maintained a faithful public witness in that they still claimed to be God's people, but they did not submit to God in all of life. They had unfaithful personal ways. So in this instance, rather than trusting God as good and submitting their sexual desires to him, they disbelieved the goodness of God's design and they rebelled against his kind authority and they pursued the God of sexual expression and fulfillment to their destruction. And then one rebel act led to another, and their, six, their sexual sin led to other sins, and that's the way of rebellion, guys. That's the way that it always goes. One sin, one act of rebellion leads to another sin and another act of rebellion. And the more that cycle continues, the more the guilt and the shame builds up in your heart. And guilt and shame are not corrective or life-giving. They don't turn you back to God. They just keep pressing you back into these idols. And the guilt and shame built, they rebelled, and one sin led to another. So they sinned sexually, And before you know it, they were not only worshiping at the altar of sexual identity and expression, they were worshiping many substitute gods of the culture. So publicly, here's what's going on, guys. Publicly, they still maintain their profession to be followers of God. We're God's family. So we see faithful public witness in that sense. But privately, by not submitting to God, they showed themselves to be what the Bible calls an idolater, an idol worshiper. And that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, he's actually referring back to that that story with Balak and Balaam. And he says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. Now, Paul's not picking on sex. Sexual immorality is just one form of potential idolatry. Just one form. It's just one form of potential idol worship. But it's just one. Our hearts tend towards lots of different idols. So what's an idol? An idol is anything or anyone which competes with or captures our affection for Jesus and our allegiance to him. That's what an idol is today. It's not going to be crafted out of wood for most of us. It's not going to be formed out of stone. It's not going to be in your home somewhere or at a building that you go and worship in, not in our culture. But an idol is anything or anyone which competes with or captures our affection for Jesus and our allegiance to him. Could be sex. And to be honest, for many of us in this room, it actually is. It is. It could be money. It could be career. It could be body image, fitness, a certain diet. 
politics, promotions, kids, not having kids, a worldview, time, control, uh, the perception of autonomy or desire for self-rule. It could be a person. Remember, anyone or anything which competes with our affection for Jesus or allegiance to him, or anyone or anything which captures that and overtakes it. So my greatest love, or my greatest source of joy, or my greatest time commitment, or fill in the blank, the affections of my heart, there's my, there's my idol. So while Balaam was no longer alive, and he was not physically present and teaching at the church in Pergamum, the spirit of Balaam lived on within God's family whenever there's a profession to be public followers of Jesus. We're Christians. I go to church. I'm out of church. Look at me. It's like Sunday. I'm, I'm with my family. Whenever that public profession is in place, but any area of our lives is withheld from Jesus' kind kingly rule, the spirit of Balaam lives on, whether it's in Pergamum or here in Okinawa. In Pergamum, it lived on um, through the Nicolaitans, which Jesus doesn't go on to unpack a whole lot of who they were or what they were doing, but he's just, he's just coupling them with this belief system. These are the Nicolaitans who are perpetuating this belief. And basically what they would do is they would take the Bible and they would use scripture to help Christians feel good about their, themselves or their, their Christianity or their public profession. Meanwhile, using scripture to justify withholding certain areas of their lives from Jesus or kind of being out in the culture and just going along to get along. Justifying the reality that maybe there's no real distinction between the culture of this church and the culture that we step in out of off the street. Right? Justifying with scripture. Balaam's name means that he has consumed the people. Right? That's, that's Balaam's name. I don't know how you come up with names for your kids, but if you're looking for that, like just strong. Balaam's name means he consumes people. Family, whenever we withhold any area of our lives from Jesus, we will be consumed by that idolatry. It will destroy you. But Jesus offers hope. He called the church in Pergamum to repent for tolerating this, this hypocrisy of a faithful public witness coupled with unfaithful personal ways. And guys, in the same way that he called the church in Pergamum to repent, he calls us to repent as well. In the same way, do you notice the entire church was commended as a family? It, the church is commended together. But now, even though not all in the church are necessarily guilty of this teaching or even this hypocrisy, the entire church is called to repentance in the same way. They were all called to repent. They were commended and corrected together as a family, and they were called to repent together as a family. Guys, if you're part of our family this morning, I'm not talking to you if you're visiting with us, but if, if this is your home, um, the commendations that Jesus gives us as a family, they're for us to share as a family. But the corrections that he gives us as a family, even if, even if the correction is addressing pockets or just small things that are going on, the corrections are for us as a family to receive and respond to in repentance. And so we need to ask this question. What areas of our lives are we withholding from Jesus' kind kingly rule? while all the while maintaining a public profession of faith in Jesus. Those are the areas that he's talking about. What areas of our lives do we know right now? Nobody else in the room knows, but we just know that we are either in willful defiance to what Jesus calls us to as his family. We know we are. 
We know there's unconfessed rebellion. Or maybe it's not willful design, uh, defiance, but maybe there's just this pattern of, of laziness in our lives where we know that we are supposed to submit all of our lives, all of our hearts to Jesus' kind kingly rule, but we are not doing that work to hold fast to Jesus in, the, in that way, all the while maintaining a public profession of faith. Yes, I am a follower of Jesus. That's what he's talking about, and that's what he's calling us to repent. Guys, this morning, let's repent together of those things. And Jesus gives us a warning In verse 16, he says, if you don't repent, I will come to you soon. And this is is strong language. He says, I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. What we're talking about is real-time judgment from Jesus for the church, which denies this tendency, claiming a faithful public witness, but persisting in unfaithful personal ways. Jesus will war against those who do not repent. He will war against them with the sword of his mouth. Jesus, through his spirit, encourages us instead to be the church which listens and responds. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. And in the New Testament, normatively, the word hear means not just to take in sound with your ears. To hear means to receive, to agree, and then to repent of the thing we are being told. And that's what we need to do this morning with those areas of our lives that the Holy Spirit is convicting us of where, yeah, there, there is some disparity between my public confession of faith in Jesus and the way that I treat my wife or the way that I treat my husband or the way that I treat my kids or what I choose to do with myself when nobody else is around or the relationships I've been pursuing that I know I should not be pursuing or the relationships I'm not pursuing that I know I should be pursuing. We just go on and on and on. Jesus calls us to repent of those things. And he offers his promise to those who repent. Here, repenters are called conquerors. To the one who conquers, I will, verse 17, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, both of these are symbols of true relationship with Jesus, the manna and the white stone. Uh, Manna, as you know from the Old Testament, was bread from heaven that God used to provide for his family when they were in the wilderness and had no natural food source of their own. And so manna here stands as a reminder that God is a good father who sustains his kids. Our father gives us what they need and he feeds us. So the manna of the Old Testament points to Jesus, who is the true and better manna. Jesus said this in John 6.35, he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Guys, listen. When we run to idols, we run to idols, substitute gods, to satisfy the hunger and the thirst that naturally exists in our souls. That's why we run to idols. But idols don't feed us. They consume us. And so our souls are fed only in running to Jesus and we run to Jesus in repentance. That is, is, you're like, man, I don't know how to run. That's, That's how we run. That is how we run to Jesus. It is through repentance. We run to Jesus who is the true and better manna. And when we run to Jesus in repentance and our souls are satisfied for the first time and then again and then again in Jesus and our idols are exposed for what they, they are, liars that can't feed our souls. They promise to and they give you a little taste and then they crush you and they consume you. But we're fed and we're fed by Jesus who is the true and better manna. 
And Jesus also gives us this white stone with a new name. Now, culturally, this is like, what in the world is going on with this? Anybody have their white stone yet? All right, it's future promise. If you have your white stone, can you please talk to me? Because I need to have a conversation with Jesus if you already have yours and I don't have mine. So please let me know. Culturally, white stones were given for a couple different reasons. If you were on trial and there was a jury trying your case and you were handed a black stone, you were in trouble. They found you guilty. A white stone given by the jury meant that you were declared innocent. The trial was, there was an acquittal that happened. That's one reason. Um, a victor in a, in a gladiatorial game or a game in the arena would be given a white stone as a sign of victory. There's another. Um, a white stone could be given as a token of membership in an exclusive club or community. And it was often used as an entrance ticket into some kind of event that you, used, you had to have an entrance ticket for. So this white stone that Jesus gives could be symbolic of any of those ideas. You're forgiven. You're accepted and adopted into the family. You have victory in Jesus that you can't have on your own. I think all of those ideas are present. But here's what's important. It's repentance that is the pathway to forgiveness and victory. It is repentance that serves as the entrance ticket, if you will, into God's kingdom. Those who repent, he says, are the ones who receive this white stone with a new name, personally given by Jesus, and only known by the recipient at some point in the future. Now, I'll just be honest with you. I don't know exactly what that means. I don't know... I don't know if it's a secret name of God that you don't already know that he just gives for you to know. I personally, just kind of reading and thinking about this, I think it's, I think it's a personal name that he gives to you that only God the Father knows. But while I don't know exactly what this means, we know this. It's a future promise. It's incredibly personal. Jesus gives you a new name that's, that you only know. It's incredibly kind to you. Because Jesus will welcome an undeserving rebel like me who doesn't hold fast to him very well. He will, he will welcome an undeserving rebel like me who is a rescued idol worshiper who still has a heart that tends to run after idols. And he's going to welcome me into his kingdom and I will be fully known and fully loved and fully accepted and forever kept. Not because of anything that I have done but because of what he himself has done in my place. That is the greatest kindness in the universe. And because of Jesus' work in your place, when you repent, you can be fully known, fully loved, fully accepted, and forever kept, free of guilt and free of shame. And so guys, the hinge point is all of, in all of this is repentance. So can I, just, can I just ask you, have you at any point in your life repented to Jesus for your rebellion? Guys, as professed followers of Jesus, do we have a track record of agreeing with Jesus that we tend to hold a public witness, yes, I'm a Christian, while at the same time tending to withhold areas of our lives that nobody else knows about from Jesus' kind kingly rule? And if, if, if guys, this is your family this morning, I want to invite you to repent with me um, as we participate in the Lord's Supper this morning, and can I just say this? Repentance does not come naturally to any of us. Repentance does not come naturally to me. I don't like apologizing to people, namely my wife and people closest to me. They're words that I have to kind of throw a fishing line down the back of my throat for, fish around, God, okay, I got something hooked, and then just pull it out. 
because they, it's like they cannot physically come out of my lips on their own. Did you know those are, those are signs of a rebel heart? Did you know that a forgiven person is one who is, whose life is marked by daily repentance to Jesus and daily confession of sin? And if that's true, the words of confession and repentance to real people in our everyday lives begin to flow more and more freely from our hearts. In the absence of those confessing words and repenting words, because we're probably just like these people that Jesus was talking about in Pergamum, and we probably have some serious repentance to do with Jesus. And guys, in his mercy, that's what he's inviting us to do this morning so that we don't know judgment, and in its place, we know his kind mercy. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd give us humble hearts to receive your word this morning. I pray if there's anybody here this morning who has never heard the good news of the gospel, that you would give them eyes to see that they are a rebel in need of rescue and you would give them the gift of faith and that today for the first time, words of repentance, words of agreeing with what you say about them, words of asking for your forgiveness and words of faith in Christ alone as their rescuer would flow freely from their mouths. And Father, for everybody else in this room who is sadly like me, where repentance is hard fought and confession is hard to find on many days. Father, cause those words to flow more freely, not because we're really good Christians, but because we go back to the gospel again and we see how much we are forgiven and accepted and loved in Jesus. And that freedom that we find in the gospel would break the ice around those words. Father, this morning, give us the courage to confess to you and maybe even publicly to other people in this room that yes, there are areas of my life, personal, private areas that I withhold from you all the while claiming that you are my king, but I don't live like you are my king when other people aren't looking. Father, give us the humility and the courage to repent and find life in repentance. Father, crush the idols in our lives, expose them as the liars that they are and feed our souls through the bread of life through your son Christ. And we pray this in his name, amen.